bitch is bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erica. And I'm Arazu. And we have a packed show for you today. Well, we always do, but especially today. So um, I don't think we have any new content this week, which is a first in a long, long time. We did work on some stuff, though. Um, So we didn't have a Wednesday Hill Times this week. Which, you know, everybody needs a break. And um, and you deserve it. You do so much. I do a <laughs> lot. <laughs> but wow, what, what a time to do it. And we're going to talk about that. Um, as part of our admin. Okay, people, we are still working on the website. Uh, I've seen a pro- like a prototype of the website. It is, it shocked me, actually. <laughs> It was just so obnoxiously pink. I loved it. Anyway, that's still coming. That's what you're going to get with me. If I have a chance to make everything pink, I will make it pink. But it's not like a, it's not like a, like our pink is always like a, an obnoxious fuck you pink. You know what I mean? Like it is so pink and saturated that you can't ignore it. Yeah. Just like we're so kind of deep and saturated that you can't ignore us. Anyway, if one were to build sort of like a brand uh, association, that would be it. All right. So Patreon supporters, thank you for your lovely contributions. Uh, We're still working on that plan. We, when we have it and when we need your input, we, we will let you know. Uh, as usual, I'm so excited about these new features and I keep talking about them and not showing you. So I'm kind of like Rihanna and her ninth album, if we ever get one. It's coming. Yeah. <laughs> Rihanna re- releases a friggin' skincare line and we're like, but where's the album? Because her last album was 2016. Okay. I still love that album, by the way. Auntie is the best. Yes. All right. So let's get into it. Um, Oh, by the way, always remember to uh, subscribe, share, comment, and um, subscribe, share, comment, tell your friends, tell everybody you know about Bad and Bitchy. And yeah, that would help us out a lot. All right. Let's get into it. So, ooh, what a week. Um, where do I start? I'm so ready for this. I, I, I'm just waiting. I'm like, Erica, please, I want to listen to you talk about this. Okay. So, we're going to get into some civil rights history this week. And I'm noticing that a lot of you are reading books, but not ones on racialized history. <laughs> and I just want to know... When does white fragility turn into um, the new Jim Crow? That's that's yes. what I want to know. Okay. And actually, there's just on the everybody know like tech, tech, tech and politics and the socioeconomic implications of tech is like my shit. I, I love reading about it. I was reading about um, something. 
about privacy that I will post on Not In My Color. Oh, that's the other thing I wanted to mention. Not In My Color, uh, my brand that takes care of that tech, politics, society, um, within an equity framework thing. Uh, I got a new logo. I'm so excited. Uh, I will unveil it at some point. Probably not now. But what... But I'm really working to sort of build that up too. So also, you can follow me or follow Not In My Color at Not In My Color. That's color with a U. You can find us at notinmycolor.com. Please be aware that um, I too am redoing my website. So hence the new logo. This summer, we're building. We're building. You know, we're building. And come fall 2020, it's going to be a whole new world for us. What else can you do in 2020 but build? Yeah, exactly. Like, this is the time. So build, rest, build, rest. That's the summer plan. Exactly. Basically. So that will be as as that I'll keep you up to date with how that progresses. But um, where you can find not in my color on Facebook, Twitter, um, Instagram and Instagram. I'm still figuring out for that brand. Anyway, let's move on. So I would say that we're in the new civil rights era. But we have just lost, uh, like, an amazing legend in the 1960s civil rights movement. Representative John Lewis, a son of sharecroppers and an apostle of nonviolence who was bloodied at Selma and across the Jim Crow South in the historic struggle for racial equality, and who then carried the mantle of moral authority to Congress, died on Friday of pancreatic cancer at age 80. In 1965, at the height of the modern civil rights movement, activists organized a march for voting rights from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery, the state capital. Uh, If anybody's watched the movie Selma, that's pretty much what it was all about. Shout out to Ava DuVernay. Um, yes, I think that was her first feature film, by the way. Ava DuVernay is amazing because she didn't even get into film until her late 30s. Anyway, you got to watch her story. Um, so on March 7th, some 600 on March 7th, sorry, 7th, 1965, some 600 people assembled at a downtown church, knelt briefly in prayer and began walking silently two by two through the city streets. The marchers were stopped as soon as they were leaving Selma at the end of the Edmund Pettus Bridge by some 150 Alabama state troopers, sheriff's deputies, and posse men who ordered the demonstrators to disperse. Posse men? What a nice way to call them the Klan. Hmm. Mm-hmm. One minute and five seconds after a two-minute warning was announced, the troopers advanced, wielding clubs, bullwhips, and tear gas. Can you imagine bullwhips? Can you imagine that shit? Anyway, John Lewis, who suffered a skull fracture, was one of the 58 people treated for injuries at the local hospital. This day is remembered in history as Bloody Sunday. There is now a movement to rename Edmund Pettus Bridge to John Lewis Bridge. I also want to make a parallel uh, this weekend, uh, Black Lives Matter 
held demonstrations across the city of Toronto and were arrested uh, for, I guess, defacing the John A. McDonald statue with some paint. (laughs) That paint was pink. (laughs) I'm brand. I'm just saying. Um, So that is... That still matters and it still happens. Okay, his comments on today's Black Lives Matter movement. Quote, it was very moving. Sorry, it was very moving, very moving to see hundreds of people from all over America and around the world take to the streets to speak up, to speak out, and to get into what I call, quote, good trouble, unquote. I feel like Good Trouble is going to be like the name of a book or a movie or something about his life. And mm-hmm. that's why I brought it up. He said, this feels and looks so different. It is so much more massive and all-inclusive. There will be no turning back. He died on the same day as another civil rights stalwart. Reverend C.T. Vivian, a close associate of Dr. King. Mr. Lewis's personal history paralleled that of the civil rights movement. He was among the original 13 freedom fighters, the black and white activists who challenged segregated interstate travel in the South in 1961. He was a founder and early leader of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which coordinated lunch counter sit-ins. He helped organize the March on Washington, where Dr. King was the main speaker on the steps of the Lincoln Lincoln Memorial, where he gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. Televised images of the beatings of Mr. Lewis and scores of others outraged the nation and galvanized support for the Voting Rights Act, which is much like how the killing of George Floyd galvanized an entire global movement. President, then President Lyndon B. Johnson presented to a joint session of Congress, the Voting Rights Act, eight days later and signed into law on August 6th. A milestone in the struggle for civil rights, the law that struck down the the literacy tests that black people had been compelled to take before they could register to vote, and replaced segregationist voting registrars with federal registrars to ensure that black people were no longer denied the ballot. So around this time in 1965, uh, it was 100 years after the end of the Civil War, and the 15th Amendment, where black men were given the right to vote in 1870, had been effectively nullified by discriminatory Jim Crow laws in much of the South, keeping many black people from the polls. In Selma, where African Americans made up more than half the population, they only constituted about 2% of registered voters. So I just want to, I just want to break here um, and just say that uh, the Voting Rights Act is probably one of the most important pieces of legislation uh, in American history next to the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, And basically what happened was that around, as as the 15th Amendment was passed in 1870s, um, black enfranchisement just spread like wildfire. 
And what happened is that under the banner of states' rights, the southern states um, enacted laws that were called Jim Crow laws to uh, basically to take rights away from black people. And that's how we got segregation. So from about 1890 to about 1965, 1970, there was the period of segregation, which I would say is just a lower form of slavery. Um, now, I also want to say that Jim Crow uh, is a name that was fashioned after um, a very famous blackface character. So now you see that connection from minstrel shows to policy. Okay, so um, literacy tests, grandfather clauses excluded from the franchise, all whose ancestors had not voted in the 1860s, even though slavery was legal in the 1860s. But, and other devices to disenfranchise African-American voters were written into the constitutions of former Confederate states. Social and economic segregation were added to black America's loss of political power. So let's look at the freedom writers, freedom riders, sorry. So Mr. Lewis, a Georgia Democrat, was among the original 13 freedom riders who rode buses across the, the South in 1961 to challenge segregation in public transportation. The riders were attacked and beaten, and one of their buses were firebombed, was firebombed. But the rides changed the way people traveled and set the stage for the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. I would also say the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is probably, sorry, the Voting Rights Act is probably the third most important and the Civil Rights Act the second. Um, in 1947, the Congress of Racial Equality, known as CORE, created a journey of reconciliation to draw attention to racial segregation in public transportation in southern cities and states across the U.S. That movement was only moderately successful, but it led to the Freedom Rides of 1961, which forever changed the way Americans travel between states. So I believe the, the movie Mississippi Burning was uh, sort of like took a piece of that. Freedom Ride Riders were not all black. There were black freedom riders, there were Jewish freedom riders, there were white freedom riders, and I'm using Jewish and white separately in this particular instance. Our civil rights leaders are dying. Elijah Cummings died last year at 68. But there's a new movement to take its place. Black Lives Matter is the most successful protest movement in US history. The recent Black Lives Matter protest peaked on June 6th when nearly half a million people turned out in nearly 550 places across the U.S. That was a single day in more than a month of protests that still continue. 15 million to 26 million people in the United States have participated in demonstrations over the death of George Floyd and others in recent weeks. So we're talking, so let's put this into perspective. The... The pop population, and this is in the middle of a pandemic, right? That's right. 
the popular where like people have been ordered to stay home where people prefer to stay home to avoid this so just imagine how higher how much higher those numbers would have been and let's um also remember that canada is what 35 million strong yeah so and uh the u.s is 336 so it's a little bit under so 26 million is between five and ten percent of the entire u.s population Mm -hmm. Okay, the entire population. Okay, and we're not even talking about the stuff that's happened overseas, because as I saw, Germany, there were some serious Black Lives Matter protests held in Germany this weekend, and they're still going. So the so to put this into further perspective, the Women's March of 2017 had a turnout of about three to five million people on a single day, and that was a highly organized event. Collectively, the recent Black Lives Matter protests, more organic in nature, appear to have far surpassed that those numbers. Quote, really, it's hard to overstate the scale of this movement, unquote, said Diva Woodley, an associate professor of politics. Professor Woodley said the civil rights marches in the 1960s were consider- considerably smaller in number. If we added up all the protests during that period, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people, but not millions. Um, so why is the movement so successful, Arzu? Like, what's your take? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that in terms of communication, in terms of organizing organically, we have so much more at our disposal, whether it be in social media, whether it be in group chats where organizers can actually connect with each other. But I also think, um, again, because Black Lives Movement, Black Lives Matter is a movement that's built on the backs or as a result of the, you know, the previous movements uh, that came before it. So as a result of that, you know, that increase in knowledge sharing spaces, that increase in having the ability to organize and to gather alliances and to really stand in solidarity with different groups whose values, whose struggles align with those of Black Lives Matter movement have really allowed for different forms of partnerships and alliances to also be built instead of, you know, some of these struggles happening in silos. Um, And again, it's something that we've already talked about, but I think now one of the great things about Black Lives Matter is that Again, it, it's a it's a collective movement, and I think from what I understand and from what we've we've even seen on social media, there's so much solidarity and support even among the organizers across cities, across borders, and um, again, the idea of a collective, the idea of a fight where um, you know the lines are blurred and everyone's um, allied. And there's resource sharing, there's knowledge sharing that has that has definitely impacted um, people's access to these organizing spaces and ability to show up. Um, And that's again, that's my insight based on a very limited set of resources and understanding and insight that I have into the movement and into what's going on. Again, I'm from the suburbs. I've been spending my whole like quarantine in the suburbs. So um, and again, in Markham, in York region, there's been much less talk and much less action. 
uh, in terms of the actual demonstrations and work happening on the ground. Although I was actually surprised that around a few hundred people actually showed up to a protest and a demonstration um, here in Markham a few uh, weeks ago. Um, but again, realizing you know that where I am geographically um, definitely impacts my understanding of what's going on on the floor, uh, on the ground, sorry, the floor. Um, uh, I, I, I think that's what I would say is uh, one of the success, uh, one of the contributors uh, to the success of this new movement. I would agree. I... Um... So I think Black Lives Matter, I think what I want to pick up on, really, is the fact that this is a community-based organization. Black Lives Matter is successful because it takes a community-based approach to solving problems. Whereas uh, we, like, which comes... Completely the antithesis of what we've been told and what we've what we've heard parroted in terms of solving problems. Oh, the market will yeah. solve it. Oh, we just need individual responsibility. Oh, we we don't we we you know the market and individual responsibility and rabid individualism oh, and shit like that. We need top down leadership. We need yeah. top down leadership. Who are the leaders? How many times have you heard that? Who are the leaders? And you're just like... Seriously, I was, mm-hmm. I was watching the videos from yesterday's prote- protest in downtown Toronto at Ryerson, at Queen's Park. You know, at all of the different locations at, at the 52 division of uh, Toronto police. And these are people, these are student organizers, these are local community organizers that have been doing this work for at least the four years that I've known them, consistently showing up for Indigenous lives, consistently showing up for Black lives, consistently calling out anti-Semitism and Islamophobia on campus, in Toronto, in their community. So again, I completely agree with you that these are people who've been doing this work, who've been building communities for years and these are the people who are on the ground who know the local issues who know the problems and who have the solutions so it's really it was really just a matter of the the our leaders and the media picking it up right i was i was like oh my god it's that person oh my god look it's it's her so there is you know that the i that ability to stay consistent and to have a community that will work to sustain you as you show up in such extreme and radical ways to lead your communities i think that's what's um really made this movement at least um to the extent that i know it in toronto strong yeah, and I also think that um, the the whole decentralized structure of it makes it more difficult to infiltrate. Uh, I mean, Black Lives Matter writ large is not directing each protest, but what it's doing it's it's teaching us how to protest. It's teaching us how to organize. It provides materials guidance and a framework for new activists and those activists are sharing it too and sharing it on social media i truly truly believe that community organizing is 
the best way you can learn relationship building and relationship building is everywhere. You don't do business without building a relationship because business is all about relationship. Right. And they're pushing the boundaries, right? They're pushing the boundaries of what it means to be courageous, what it means to show up for communities and for these solutions, right? Like idol no more, wet, sweat and strong. Black Lives Matter. That's what they're really doing. The consciousness raising. I mean, aside from the protest, the consciousness raising and the courage building. I'm not sure if that's even a word. Sure. Work that they're doing. That's, I think, for a whole new generation of activists and people, it's redefined what's acceptable. And um, again, kind of calling out this bullshit of like not, you know, kind of peaceful protest like what does that really mean and what has that really achieved for us in this new era of um you know activism and um kind of fight against inequity well and that's the question they're posing right yes. and that's the work they're doing yes yes and they're always posing a question and it's always in your face and that's why people hate them because yeah. because uh, they won't back down. And I also like I also want to um, so I'll get to the social media bit, but I really want to stay a little bit longer on the idea of what leadership looks like and the leadership structure. So the movement of the 60s needed a big institutional structure to make things work, in part because of the yeah. limitations of the tech technology at the time. Now, that kind of structure has come to seem aged, aged, let's say, after Michael Brown was shot dead in Ferguson and the city became a lightning rod for activism. There was a new kind of epiphany about movement building. We don't need institutions to do it. We can do it ourselves. In fact, the institutions, I think, and and Ferguson really showed this, that the institutions were too corrupt to be able to do anything, anything, even if they wanted to. And the whole idea of systemic racism is that those institutions are not supposed to be equipped to solve a racial disparity. Because the whole point of institutional racism is to continually, consistently churn out those disparities, no matter who's in charge. That's the point. Yeah. This is why the New York Times opinion piece, uh, opinion section is still trash after that guy left. You know? Anyway, mm-hmm. I'm getting a little off topic. So, um, so the NAACP, uh, the NAACP used to hang a flag outside of their headquarters every time a black man was lynched. Now we post about it, says Ashley Sharpton, Al Sharpton's daughter, who is, of course, an activist. So um, now that uh, I think we're going to get into this a little bit later, it's going to bleed. But let's talk about technology and how Black Lives Matter made like sorry but made social media fucking relevant yeah you know before that everybody was posting cat pictures and shit yeah now social media is the tool and it's really funny because again we talked about this a little on twitter this week Mm. but 
I I remember even up until like a few maybe a year or two years ago there were these like you know a few white progressive women let's say in Canadian politics who really popularized this whole idea of you know slacktivism of how you know using social media and hashtags and just like doing social media activism you're really just slacking off and you're not doing anything because that's the only thing you're doing right and this was coming from people who are like of course white lady you have access to all of these other platforms all of these other systems of power where you can make sure that your voice is heard where you can play you know the gender card because that's the only card keeping you away from accessing white patriarchal power to kind of again gain access or you know get your foot through the door to talk about these issues right And now suddenly what Black Lives Matter did, like this is the movement. This is how that knowledge building, that's how courage building um, now happens, right? Through um, sharing that voice, sharing that criticism online and through social media. And then that's bleeding again, as you said, onto the streets and really building a movement that movement that's unprecedented in U.S. history and like global politics, um, but that's the tech piece, right? Of how, uh, you know, it was slacktivism and it was just hashtag activism that didn't really do anything when all of these progressive white women were kind of tired of the fact that, you know, all of these movements were gaining momentum and building power on social media. And now suddenly it just shows us of how like irrelevant sometimes these opinions become when they come from people who have so much access and leeway within these white supremacist institutions which is why power is at the heart of everything i had to say that no no you're right because um actually like i'm glad you brought up hashtag activism i'm so glad you brought this up and i didn't even anticipate this first of all that's how I started. Here yeah, we are. Same. So I first of all, don't like people in power who should tell you people in power are trying to tell us how to be activists. Are you fucking kidding me right now? I literally had an MP tell me tell the media that I was harassing her on Twitter when I was literally just asking her why she wasn't doing anything about sexual violence in politics. She was like, I just block like abusive accounts and like harassment. And I was like, girl, I wish I was you. Yeah, really. You know how easy it is for you to block out anything that you don't want to hear and pretend it never happened. That's exactly that's exactly it. And that's exactly how they're behaving. And um white women have been instrumental at pushing that by the way so i also read a very interesting article on digiday and um digiday is like it talks a lot about advertising and marketing in on online basically right and they were talking about how instrumental slack has become in terms of in the media industry for employees to challenge their bosses and to organize. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and the fact that it's this it's happening right in the face of the employer means that the employer ironically is less powerful in that situation because if they retaliate or do anything to these people, then all they're providing is fuel to a future lawsuit 
or to really, really explosive bad PR or brand um, devaluation, right? Especially in these times. But really it's Slack that has become the organizing platform for even unionization of media um, employees. And I think that's pretty amazing. So Mm -hmm. anybody who talks about hashtag activism are people who don't get off their couch to do anything for anybody. Okay, next. Um, All I'm saying is, and I also want to say too that online life and real life are pretty much blurred right now. So it's not like you're doing nothing. However, I do always encourage people to move to add to their to their repertoire of hashtag activism. So in other words, you know, go to some events, uh, attend some seminars, attend some workshops, be involved. Like literally it costs less in terms of energy because everything's online right now. Yeah. But show up in other words. Okay. So speaking of social, so as we go into social media, uh, social media has acted both as a television, as an unfiltered television of all of these things going on. By the way, or there's something funky going on in Portland where oh girl federal um federal agents showed up in unmarked vehicles to arrest a whole bunch of protesters and take them god knows where. I'm like what kind of Apparently they were rental cars. <gasps> no. I think I saw something. Okay, I don't want to like be known for misinformation, but I saw something um well, people can look it up. Portland. Yeah, look that up. Okay. You could like literally look it up. There are threads everywhere. There's... But I remember the image that I will now remember of Portland is that naked white woman. <laughs> okay. In the middle of the street. Like, like sitting down, legs open, arms, arms. I don't know where, where her arms were because I was obviously focused on one area. You know, in the middle of a street with heavily armed militarized police, like, pointing at her. Yeah. Like, that's iconic at this point. So media matters, by the way, and it matters a lot. And because social media, although, you know, is is still very unrestrained compared to traditional media, it's less filtered. However, misinformation is all, it also opens up to misinformation. Anyway, so um, I also want to remind everybody that, um, and I say this a lot, D. Ray McKesson is not an original founder of Black Lives Matter, okay? Oh, girl, no. In 2013, Patrice Cullors, C-U-L-L-O-R-S, Alicia Garza and Opal Tometi formed the Black Lives Matter Network. And it's an on as an online platform that existed to provide activists with a shared set of principles and goals. And that was on July 13th, 2013. Happy seventh year anniversary, Black Lives Matter. So this is a woman-led organization. Uh, I also believe it's a queer-led organization, too. 
And so, um, and these are like radical black organizers, okay? Who basically, I mean, think about it. Like, just think about it. In the face of the president of the United States telling you that you're that you're terrorist, imagine what kind of emotional labor that is in mental health. Yeah. Like I just want to take I just want to take some time to point that out because these women stood strong in the face of a world who didn't want to hear them and wanted to shut them up. I know because when I and started they created a movement <clears throat> that's unstoppable. It's now. unstoppable now. So for all the people who I just want to remind people to all those who say uh, if you're too radical, you'll you'll alienate the people who who want to be on your side. Bullshit. Uh, you have to become more moderate to get any, anything done. Bullshit. You um, have to change who you are and become more palatable to whiteness to be accepted. Bullshit. We have the power to change the context within which we live. We have an opportunity to change the status quo and to fight against it and to make something better and to create something better. And I just want everybody, whatever they're going to take from this episode, to ask themselves, what am I going to do to change the status quo to make it better? And it doesn't, I know it seems like like basically Black Lives Matter gave you all a roadmap. Blacklivesmatter.com, blacklivesmatter.ca. Okay, so there's one. Number two, what organizations are operating in your community outside your door? So I know here we have the Parkdale Food Bank. We have an uh, OICS, which is uh, Ottawa Immigration Counseling Services or something like that, down the street. I live in Hintonburg. Um, there's the Justice for Abdirman Abdi Coalition. There are so many places doing this group, this work, that literally all you have to do is Google. You can't be too lazy to Google or else what are you talking about? Okay. So after that, um, Gen X, speaking of which, so uh, Gen X, uh, sorry, not Gen X because, God, Gen X, my God. Okay, Gen Z, that's you, Arzu. It's y'all. You guys have grown up with social media from, you will have like technology from like cradle to grave. You are that generation. So you guys really are pushing this movement. Because even 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 the co- the founders of Black Lives Matter must seem like a little old to you guys, right? <laughs> you know, I'm sure they're in their 30s right now, but um, but the fact that it's you guys who have really been born into a shitty world, okay? So you guys inherited this world, girl. I feel you like one of my earliest memories is like U.S. drones falling over the Baghdad like skyline. That's like that tells you enough about my generation. Yeah, (laughs) that's like my earliest memory. Exactly. And I'm sure they had to wear masks then, Arzu. I'm just Mm -hmm. saying. So you guys inherited a really shitty world. 
post nine that began with like nine eleven and the war on terrorism, which we, really what began became the war on Islam, and anybody who, who um and any Muslim, it really turned into the war on Muslims. Okay, let's be honest. I'm dabbing right now. If you can't, say I can't. That was like my it is my post trauma response you can see it. You <laughs> to all the Islamophobia. You could see from all the rhetoric that you're like, oh yeah. This is this is problematic and I blame I blame George W. Bush and those Republicans for making it so. And the Democrats who supported them, by the way, because silence is violence, Hillary Clinton. Um their worldview has been shaped by Black Lives Matter. That's y'all. You are mm-hmm. the largest generation in America and the most racially diverse. And you guys are voting now. However, you're being ruled by one of the most elderly governments in American history, by a president who makes racist remarks on a weekly occurrence. Uh, You are graduating into shitty economies. There's a pandemic. Let's not forget 2008 and the financial crisis that wiped out a lot of wealth for your parents and your families. Okay? Uh, What else? What else? What else is there? You also grew up with a black president. Yeah. And I think that that representation says a lot. Um, it's such a like mixed bag of experiences. It's a mixed shitty bag of like, experiences. Are we, are we celebrating the representation politics or are we just like cringing at the like white supremacist rhetoric? Like which one is it? Like we're stuck in the middle. You are stuck in the middle. <laughs> and... <laughs> Yeah, it's really shitty. So, uh, your use of social media has also helped. And as you like, these things started out on like Instagram and Facebook. And so, okay, more Facebook. But now there are other, um, there are other apps such as Signal. And Signal is one that I've read up on where you can actually communicate about protests and uh even fires and police presence and so on uh apparently signal is like intercepts like 911 calls or not intercepts but gets the data from it and creates like this this uh, this sort of announcement sort of of notification software um Instagram and Twitter to coordinate protests and hype. Uh, Many organization organizers are operating anonymously, working against disruption and surveillance efforts from local police like the NYPD. Edward Snowden uses it. Uses Signal? Yeah. No way. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay. So Signal it is. Uh, Signal, sponsor us. Thank you. Signal, Signal, come sponsor us. Actually, by the way, uh, surveillance on protesters is an issue. And I feel like if you've been following Not In My Color, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Uh, yeah, I was about to say, like, follow Not In My Color. Like, just, honestly, like, stop this episode. Go on Twitter. Follow Not In My Color. Yeah, literally. And uh, a lot of these sort of tech stories including the the Facebook story about their advertisers and stop hate for profit. Um, 
there is going there's a piece up there about privacy and why privacy is important and it will open your eyes and it it's a piece that argues that privacy is a collective issue and it's not an individual one anyway that's there so i would say I don't know how much longer these protests are going to last, but the longer they go on is the more entrenched the ideas are going to be. Do you have anything else? No, I completely agree with you. But again, just to go back on a few points that you made, I think when you were talking about um, like this specific moment in time that we have, we're now a part of and the tools that we have at our disposal to really be able to make those changes. It really brought me to a quote by Angela Davis, who said that you have to act as if it were possible to radically transform the world world, and you have to do it all the time, right? So you have to, you know, if you agree with a leader, if you agree with the activists who are doing so much more, so much work on the ground, show up and support them, right? If you really believe that you and your community and the folks on the ground have the power to actually radically transform how we support our communities, whether it be through defunding the police, whether it be investing in um, support services for underserved communities, you have to show up for it and you have to make that opinion known. And you have to do it all the time, right? Because again, as um, Erica just said right now, this is not going to stop. This Black Lives Matter movement is so much more bigger than any of the individuals, especially the non-Black individuals and the allies who are supporting the work. And we need to be able to be consistent and make sure that the movement and the leaders of the movement are being sustained in ways that actually reflects that vision um, of, you know, taking care of our communities and being in solidarity with each other can live. So that's my two cents on that. Well, yeah, that's absolutely perfect. And um, I understand that, w- that white people are doing their reading. Uh, but yeah. your reading is not good enough. And if you think we're being too demanding, we are. Not too demanding, but yeah, we're demanding something from you. You know that Shia LaBeouf gif, like, just do yeah. it with the fire in the background? Yeah. Just do it. That. That's the, that's the energy. That may be a title. Those are the vibes. Just do it. That's the title. Yeah. I'm just saying. Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's move on. Arzu, tell us what's happening in the job market. Well, um, a lot is happening. Again, we're in the middle of a pandemic. But this week, according um, to the RBC, the COVID-19 pandemic has pushed women's participation in the labor force down to its lowest level in three decades. So this is not surprising because women have uh, seen proportionately steeper job losses than men and are more often precariously employed. Um, Again, precarious employment looks like part-time work or contract work and work in sectors that were affected early on in the pandemic. So this includes childcare, healthcare, and personal support work. So all of those feminized um, jobs um, that are, you know, usually more undervalued in our economy and in our culture. 
Um, according to Statistics Canada, 1.5 million women lost jobs over March and April, which is a 17% drop in employment from February levels. Women also accounted for about 45% of the decline in hours worked over the downturn, but pr uh, projections also show that they're expected to make, make up only 35% um, of that recovery. And it's like these numbers have been even worse among young women because women between 15 to 24 have been impacted the most with the economic fallout of COVID-19 with a 38% fall, um, sorry, in employment. So that's Gen Z. Yeah, as we were just talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Go yeah. on. So again, add this to that list. Okay, yeah. <laughs> So in addition to the economic and employment impacts of COVID-19, women have been bearing the brunt of additional care work for not only their children and families, but also their communities. In our last episode, episode 94, we talked about the numerous young Black, Indigenous, and racialized women who have stepped up and created community support networks and activities that have been addressing issues such as food insecurity, and community support among underserved communities. According to Oxfam Canada, as a result of this, seven out of 10 Canadian women are experiencing more anxiety, depression, fatigue, and isolation because of this increase in unpaid care work that we're performing. The pandemic has also shown us the invaluable work of essential workers, such as healthcare professionals and service and retail industry workers, while unpaid domestic labor still remains mainly understood as women's work and continues to be unpaid and devalued in our economy. And the same Oxfam report shows that like many other inequities, the impacts, um, many um, like many other inequities, this impacts Black, Indigenous, and racialized women disproportionately because, again, around half of Indigenous women who were uh, interviewed in that study and 55% of the Black women reported struggling financially because of unpaid care work compared to only 34% of white women. So that's almost 20% more than white women. Some women also reported having to give up looking for paid work because of increased responsibilities at home being pushed on them. So we're talking about childcare, elder care, general housework. And this was even higher for indigenous women who were three times more likely than white women to be faced with these particular struggles. So all of that's happening, you know, whether it be a loss of participation in the paid work market you know, plus the care work that women do in the domestic sphere. And that's resulted in women accounting for three-fifths of new applicants for the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, CERB, since late June. So in the last month, you know, less than half a month, less than like, yeah, less than a month only. So women have been three-fifths of new applicants. And this is an indicator of a widening gender gap in the job market as the economy begins, sort of begins, to bounce back from its unprecedented plummet in the spring, again, in the beginning of the pandemic. 
And this gender gap is emerging as a significant challenge for the federal government and the provinces as policymakers and leaders try to balance this public health measures that have been put in place to deal with the pandemic with um, the need to reopen schools and daycares so that parents, primarily women, uh, can return to work. And when we look at this, it's especially important considering the fact that, as we said, women shoulder more, more childcare responsibilities than men and may have to even sometimes opt out of the workforce or seek a reduction in hours if students don't go back to school in the fall. So again, we're talking about women who have not only lost their jobs and access to the job force since February, potentially, but who may have no prospects of going back to work in a meaningful way um, for as long as this um, pandemic goes on or as long as the public health measures don't allow students to go back to school or childcare options to open up. So here's a, fa- a woman's dilemma. And I say women because I, I know it's families and men are in families too, but fuck it. This is bad and bitchy. Um, women uh, who are working, right? Are yeah. So full-time working women are at home right now with their kids 24-7. What that means mm-hmm. is that they have to provide schooling for their children. They have to provide a schedule. They have to provide um, attention, uh, extra study attention or whatever. They have to develop lesson plans. Imagine what goes into teaching a student. That is now largely being taken on by parents, mostly women, because women um, do the domestic labor for the most part. Now, you could tell me that your husband's great and blah, 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 but like whatever. He's for men, it's a bonus for women. It is expected. Right. So that's the difference. So the man has a power to say no. That's my point. So things like summer camps that are closed, um, yep. activities, babysitters, child, any sort of childcare means that w- there's an opportunity cost. And I want to emphasize the opportunity cost yes. of children being at home and that opportunity cost for women. So if school does not open up in September... If some sort of childcare isn't arranged in a, a more systematic way, so where children maybe go to uh, daycares or whatever, if that doesn't yeah. happen, then it means that women can't go back to work. Exactly. And yeah. the opportunity cost for them not going back to work, because e- even if this lasts, like, maybe, let's say by some miracle there's a vaccine. Uh, in spring okay um the loss the oper- there's another opportunity cost of staying home for women they they'll lose some of their networks uh th- there's a lot of labor research labor economics research to show that women who take time to have children uh negatively impacts their earnings 
I was gonna say it's gonna be similar to the rates that we see with maternal leaves. There you right? go. Uh, ma- maternity leaves. Yeah. And these are conversations that I've personally had. I don't have children, so th- these are personal conversations I've had with women and with men who are concerned. Right. And so, um, yeah. I, but this is bad and bitchy, of course. Uh, but so, and the employers are not taking this on board. They're not creating policies that will take that into consideration. And that is a problem. By the way, as a plug, that's what Not In My Color is going to start doing in fall. Anyway, go on. <laughs> Advisory yeah, and again, you, you already kind of pointed to this. But again, we need structural and systemic changes to make sure that it, this economic backlash, um, the, the gendered kind of uh, uh, lens that's been applied to this economic backlash kind of, um, I don't know how to say it, but facilitates uh, those kinds of uh, discriminations and uh, negative outcomes for women in the workplace right so the government's economic plans and responses to to what we've been going through so far seems to kind of you know forego their whole like gba plus and feminist lens that this you know government has been kind of talking about for as long as they've been in office right oh they've Um, been talking yeah, like the pandemic response does not necessarily ref- reflect all of that GBA plus and feminist talk, right? You know, they, they're the only very specifically gendered decision that they've made has been supporting shelters and emergency response um, organizations for women, which is obviously important, but that remains that's one piece of the puzzle nothing else that they've done really screams to me that hey women we created this with you in mind and that's a problem you know when it comes to supporting sectors that predominantly employ women or support them in going back to work the government hasn't really been uh, gender conscious as i would say in making those decisions uh, and they will not be able to support women in the aftermath of this pandemic unless they're willing to radically change and transform how they approach what we would call the care economy. So basically, the care economy is the sector of economic activities, both paid and unpaid, related to the provisions of social and material care work um, that is disproportionately taken on by women. So again, it's a feminized sector. It's a sector that is, uh, you know, dominated by women where women do, you know, most of the work. So on average, women earn lower incomes, women's work is undervalued, and female-headed households are more likely to be poor than those headed by men. So this pandemic exposes this already existing inequality and the disproportionate amount of unpaid and undervalued paid care work being shouldered by women in families and the resources and the support necessary for women still working during COVID-19 has been kind of further complicated by the fact that our government has had no care, you know, no specific gendered approaches towards their responses and specifically no plan for childcare, which is what we just talked about, which can play a huge role in women's participation in the paid, uh, you know, paid work economy. So I'm so I'm glad that you yeah. 
you were spending so much time talking about the importance of childcare. Because I really do think that that importance of childcare, um, I didn't even see it as much as I do now. No. And I have to say that people been, women been saying this for fucking decades. Women been saying this to all these men who are in power and they pat us on the fucking head and they're like, they're there. That's a nice suggestion, but we can't afford it. How many times have we heard we can't afford it? Well, we're going to pay the price in fall because what's going to happen is what we're going to see is a shrinking of the labor market and that is going to bring down economic growth. So the point of the matter is all of this matters. These this this these social issues that are that are treated as some one off thing, everything is connected. Everything. Yeah. And but again, our government still like they literally the whole world depends on the underpaid work of women, the underpaid domestic and care work work of women to to succeed. Right. That's the whole economic model of the world has been created on the basis that we have a private and a public realm and that women will take on all the unpaid work that happens in the private realm. And men partake in the work that is paid, that creates capital, that creates power. And that's how the gender, you know, gender equality and capitalism and the workforce and all of these intersect to maintain a job market, a family structure a um an economy that is not only held up that is not only upheld by inequity but also like creates it and that's the whole problem the government is actually counting on us women to do unpaid labor so that you know the men who are expected to more easily leave their families and leave their kids and go back to you know paid work experiences be able to do that be able to do the rebuilding and I, I think, you know, we, we say that, you know, they can't do that. But at the same time, there is a balance, right? They actually are depending on women's unpaid labor to be able to do the rest of the economic activities that they're planning for. Yeah. Again, I got too excited. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, you do. You do that. Honestly, um, it's not. And I, I also want to say we're always... Um, we are always made to think that this is just so radical that, you know, oh, no, we can't do anything because it's just, no, no, exactly what you're suggesting is too radical. Like, we don't know what the outcome would be. Bullshit. Hawaii. Hawaii did something pretty awesome. Uh, They introduced, um, so the Hawaii's Commission on the Status of Women uh, introduced basically a uh, feminist economic and social policy. Uh, and these policies are intersectional. Ho- so Hawaii's commission on the status of women introduced policies that would engender some serious pearl clutching in this country, uh, move from militarization and move towards caregiving and equity including free publicly funded child care for all essential workers. 
What's the p- now? That's what I would call a feminist policy. So what's the problem? Somebody else Take did notes. it. Notes. <laughs> so like, like you don't even need to come up with this. Most things you just don't need to come up with the, you know. The and itself. even in Canada, like institutions, like again, since in 1976, the Royal Commission on the Status of Women, again 1976, almost 50 years ago. They recommended universal childcare as one of the avenues to advance gender equality in Canada. And yet in 2020, last week, when the federal government and the provinces publicized their plan called the Safe Restart Agreement, the lowest allocations for funding go toward long-term home care, which is a field that's dominated by women, and secondly, to childcare. The lowest allocated funds go towards childcare in Canada's recovery plan. This government That's is it. doing nothing for women. Nothing. This government is failing women. I will say that. Like, I, I already knew they were failing women, but they're really failing women now because this is fact. What we're talking about has been talked about so many times. Uh, and it really is not that difficult. I've written about it, like, in the Hill Times. Like, yeah. it's not that hard of a concept to grasp, right? And I mean, even this May, Trudeau himself said that the need for childcare has never been clearer. And yet, there's no bulk investments, there are no concrete plans for creating affordable and universal childcare for Canadians. Just do it, Trudeau. Just do it. I don't know this guy. Well, he hasn't done anything for black people either. But this guy is is honestly. Uh, <laughs> and you know what? Unfortunately, he's what we got. Um, You know what? Had he not you know, given. St- as some white Canadians would say, at least is not Trump, you know? <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a low bar, okay? That yeah, bar I know. <laughs> that bar is like on the ocean floor. <laughs> it's so low. Yeah. So um you said on average women earn twelve percent less than men one year after graduation. Uh before previously on this podcast I haven't said that yet. <laughs> I'm saying it now. But I will say it. Yeah. <laughs> and and the reason the reason I brought it up is because um we actually talked about, we as the podcast talked about on a previous episode, maybe it was last year or the year before, I can't remember, about how the gender gap starts in the teens, the gender wage gap. Yeah. And babysitting is a huge contributor to that. And a lot of it has to do with the way also uh, parents view female and male babysitters for for men for males it's a job for women it's like oh well you take care of your little sister anyway so i want everybody we talk about the care economy that's where it exactly starts. so everybody who has a babysitter right now i want you to actually think about how you're paying them actually if they're babysitting for you at this point because they got to save themselves too but the point is that we as a society are also responsible for the perpetuation of that gender wage gap. Like we can't always look to Trudeau, even though Trudeau has failed us really, really badly. Okay, carry on. 
And honestly, it's I think this is actually a good kind of transition because it, like as we're talking about how we deal with the economic fallout of this pandemic, we can't leave young women behind. Like our entry through the workforce, our access to education, this has all been impacted by the pandemic. Um, according to the Canadian Labour Congress, I, I read this report, I think a few years ago when I was working for YWCA Toronto. But again, the numbers are so drastic that they really just stuck with me. Young women, um, you know, as of 2016, and I'm sure the numbers will happen to be worse um, or actually even similar, uh, because again, I'm going to go into the Ca- Canadian Labour Congress numbers in, in a bit, But again, this whole idea that the gender gap is narrowing, that's only actually true for white women. For black, indigenous, for racialized women, it was widening long before this pandemic came along. But again, young women already earn an average of 71% of young women's weekly income before the pandemic hit. In addition to that, and again, prior to the pandemic, young women were more likely than young men to work part-time and hold multiple jobs. So again, be employed in precarious positions. And considering this widening employment gap and uncertainty of when and how the job market will reopen, um, as contributing factors to this gender wage gap that we now know of, um, it will be, you know, even wider for black, indigenous, and racialized women who are not only expected to, but so often do prioritize our families and our communities um, over our own sustainability and over our own wellness. So again, when we talk about the wage gap, there is not a lot of data. The data that's there is usually not representative when it comes to the needs of black, indigenous, and racialized young women in the job market. So a lot of what we have to do is to make sure that, uh, as Erica said, we're really trying to address this not only on a structural, uh, structural level and getting our leaders and understanding the needs that do exist and persist in communities and in the workforce when it comes to racialized women and underserved women, but really be make sure that us as leaders, as people who have a voice and who have platforms and avenues and platforms of power to be able to make some of these changes that we're talking about. But again, to bring this to our conversation, it's important to know. So at this exact moment in time, as we're going through the pandemic and planning for recovery, We need to think about the intersection of education and employment and how accessibility and sexism in the workplace play a crucial role in widening that gap and setting, you know, setting young women up for failure and for marginalization. In January of this year, the Labor Market Information Council and the Education Policy Research Initiative based in the University of Ottawa shared that Canada's gender uh, gender earnings gap starts immediately after post-secondary graduation and widens notably in the first five years in the workforce as men out-earn women. On average, women earn 12% around $5,700 less than men one year after graduation. Five years after graduation, the earnings gap widens to 25% or around $17,000. 
By that point, the gap is found within almost every field of study or type of degree. So again, keep in mind that these numbers do not reflect the wider gaps, gaps experienced by Black, Indigenous, and racialized women, women with disabilities, as well as refugee or immigrant women. So here's a piece of advice for all of the young women or recent grads who are listening. Negotiate your salaries because we know that our governments, our employers, the systems that we're engaging with, they're not very adamant about making sure that women have the resources and structures we need to succeed and to earn money for the hard work that we put into the, you know, we bring to the spaces that we enter. So it's really at this point, I feel like at least for me, it's really been on me to negotiate my salaries and to make sure that the people that we work with know our worth and know what we bring to the table. So again, that's a result of the sexism and the gender bias in company cultures, in the structures that we engage with every day. Um, I I read this, uh, I'm not sure where I read it, but again, I read this um, research about how men are viewed and subsequently offered positions and salaries based on their potential and not their achievements, Right. Just think about the numerous college rapists who were let off the hook because they showed great potential when their victims were left to fend for themselves in the aftermath of rape and assault. Right. Like, oh, my God, he's a great swimmer. Oh, my God, he has so much potential. He's going to be an engineer. Right. So men are judged based on what they can be and not their achievements, whereas women are expected to go above and beyond just to get half their recognition than white men do and you know do get in the workplace well so here's the yeah go ahead here's the thing i i also think that women's potential is viewed as how well they can serve a man yeah so how well do you fall within this like patriarchal hierarchical structure that we've created basically and whether or not you're a threat to it yeah yeah and which most of the time, especially black women and indigenous women, are inherently viewed as threats to that white patriarchal power. Because white patri- patriarchal power is, is, was constructed orthogonal to black and indigenous people and what we do. Yeah. So it's in construction, it's that way. Yeah. 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 So if you're a young woman, especially a black, indigenous, and racialized young woman, honestly, don't be afraid to ask for a higher or even the highest salary range. Or even like, honestly, I'm going to tell this to you, lie on your resume. Because honestly, white men do, and they're celebrated for it, and they're let off the hook. Okay, how much does this lie go? Honestly, girl... I don't know. Seriously, like if so here's, here's the thing, here's, women. OK, here's the thing. Women apply for jobs um, if they meet 100 percent of the criteria. Yeah. You know what men do? 60. If they meet 30 percent of the criteria. 30? I thought it was 60. OK, I think you um, go and check it out. Either 30 or 60, but certainly not 100 percent and not close enough. If they meet at least around half of that criteria, they're going to go for mm-hmm. it and they're going to pretend that they're the shit and they're going to demand that job. Well, and so if it take, you know what I mean? Yeah. So that's what I really mean. Well, here's here's my thing. So I uh, never want to create a situation I could be tripped up on later. 
So that's my thing. I think that's just protective. But I will say this. Use the most elevated language you can. In other words, don't say I participated in, say I led. And honestly, yeah, I'm not saying like go and say I was VP of Google. You know what I'm saying? But again, make sure that you're not downplaying and that you're over exaggerating the work that you've done. Because as great as what you do may be in the eyes of people who don't view your work as valuable, it's going to appear to almost nothing. Yeah. It's going to equate to almost nothing. So that's what I mean. Make sure that you're advocating for yourself, that you're using words and you're using language. And again, if it looks, you know what I mean? Because sometimes you're like, oh, it's just a volunteer thing that I did for this and this. No, even if it was volunteer work and you were doing it, you need to put it on your resume as a job. You need to make sure that that counts towards your experience because it does. And you need to make sure that your employers know that. People, a CV is a marketing document. Tell them how much. It's a marketing document. Tell them how much you're worth and justify it. That's marketing. Show them how much you're worth and justify it. You know, so you know your worth. So when you've got your supervisor at the table, make sure they know what they're getting and make sure that they'll pay you accordingly. Because with this widening wage gap, now's not the time to be meek and grateful and be like, hey, I don't want to lie and I have values and blah. No, you got to keep your eye on the prize and get it. Cause, because, girl, nobody else is looking out for you. And I had to learn that the hard way. So on that, right? on that wage thing... Um, this is really juicy, so I don't think we're going to get to the next topic, um, which is fine. Um, I struggled. And when I say struggled, with a capital S with that. Yeah. And, you know, when I first started not in my color and how did like it took me literally like two years to figure out what to charge. And then. Yeah. Here's the thing. Women don't talk about money. No. And you need to start talking about money and your damn salary. Okay? I'm sorry, but I know your parents told you it was rude, but times are different. Because you're getting we're also getting fucked over because we don't share information. Right? So if somebody says yeah. I made X, Y, and Z, right? Uh then you know that that's your floor. Right? Yep. The other thing, too, uh, people will don't worry about willingness to pay as much as we do. People will pay. If you can, if you honestly come through and you're like, this is my rate. They already by the time they called you, they already know that you're the one they want. This is my rate. Do not be afraid. I know it's hard. I know. I you y'all don't know how much I know how hard this is. Okay. Yeah. Um I will may have more to talk about this later, but at another podcast, but but honestly, we are forced to negotiate our wage. And I really think that that's some yeah. fucking hunger game shit from corporate. Mm-hmm. And from capitalists. Uh, but if you don't value you, they won't value you either. That I can promise you. 
Because again, the whole job market, the whole economy, especially, this was created on the basis that black women who were brought to this country, to this continent as slaves, that they would be performing unpaid labor. That, that's the, like the basis of this economy, right? And it still thrives on underpaying and undervaluing the labor of black women, the labor of indigenous women. So obviously, and again, they expect you to do it for free. It's like, hey, can you just like create this graphic for me? Or hey, can I get a coffee, you know, with you to like gain access to your knowledge? No, a lot of coffee. Your work has got value, and you've got your rate. There are a lot of coffees, and they're gonna have to pay for you're it. Ri- you're <laughs> right about that coffee thing. Can I buy you a coffee and pick your brain? Can I pick your brain? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there, anyway. There's stuff that I will give away for free, but there's also stuff that I won't. I'm not going to solve your problem for free. Problem solving costs money just like convenience costs money. So don't, if somebody wants you to solve a problem, they better be paying you because there are not a lot of problem solvers around. I've seen, and I've seen these fuckers in boardrooms, okay? These white guys have no idea, no clue. They just, and I've seen a lot of white guys make it off the backs of the labor of black women, of, of, of Muslim women, of of a lot of women, who, they Girl, will even talking about they will they will talk about picking your brain and make you feel like you're important, yep. and then they'll steal your ideas and steal your thoughts, and then they'll use it to give themselves a promotion. I've seen this so Girl, many times. Seriously, even in the women's sector, in the nonprofit sector. Homegirl will live, will review to like reports, researched, created, you know, analyzed by black women, by racialized women, add to random surface level opinion pieces to the bottom of it, call that an S, like an analysis, a policy paper, and post that online and be like, hey, I wrote this. And call themselves, hey, leaders on gender equality and leaders on this and that. I'm seeing a lot of that. While we know who did the real research. I'm seeing a lot of that. We know who brought the funding for that research. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't you, homegirl. No, sing it, sister. So stop. So stop using your proximity to whiteness as a racial, as a non-black and a non-indigenous racialized woman to steal the intellectual property and the work of black women in the workplace. Like, stop doing that because you're a part of the problem. You know, you're brown and you're Muslim when it suits you and you're the white voice of reason when it comes to gaslighting and stealing from black women. Pick a side. Anyway, I'm getting to... This is this is like the... This is petulant, no bullshit Arzu coming out. But... Again, I'm tired of the nonprofit sector, and we talked a bit about it in the last episode, but it's got a real race issue. So question, uh, but something good happened to you lately, recently. Yes, I got hired. Uh, I'm so excited. Permanent? After three months. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> At a workplace I really like, so that's exciting. That's been a win. And I really just, I, I made it clear for them. I was like, hey... 
this is what I'm about, this is what I bring to the table, and I'm very excited about joining you. So, this is what I can give you, this is what I offer, and this is what I expect in return. Okay, so you just gave an <laughs> overview of basically your attitude going in. Um, yeah. Was this, did you approach this one differently? Or did you just find the spot that you were looking for? Like, I think I found, so here's what happened. I really wanted, I, I was really interested in the organization and the work they did. It's very aligned with work that I've already been doing. But at the same time, it was challenging because the work that I do is mainly focused on racialized women and marginalized women. And so in spaces where there's not a specific intersectional or um, kind of racial inclusion mandate, it happens, you know, a lot of times it naturally wields power, you know, like yields power to like white women. Um, so again, I was very mindful of the fact that this is not going to be like, you know, like every other day for me, it's not going to be a piece of cake, like, you know, engaging and working with and trying to understand um, the issues faced by marginalized women. But at the same time, I was very clear to make it known that, hey, this is work that I do. I'm very focused on equity. I'm very focused on intersectionality. And I see a great opportunity to make sure that if you say you are, your organization is committed to A, B, and C, that it shows up in the work that you actually do. So again, it was very, I wouldn't say non-threatening, because again, it, it, it wasn't a hostile environment. And unfortunately, as racialized women in the workplace, we are forced to react to a lot of hostile environments. But again, being an interview and being the first kind of interaction, it was I was very mindful that, um, again, I'm not going to make myself okay. palatable to okay. that. No, no, I'm no. just going to present who I am. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, that's, in terms that's that what I want to get to instead of... <laughs> Yeah, what you said. Uh, I'm going to cut that last part. This is full circle. This is this is what I wanted to get to. Um, My thing, like it seemed to me, like when we were talking about this off mic, that you just went in there and you were like, "Okay, this is me, but this is also what I bring to the table," right? Yeah. So what you were explaining is great, but when you put it all together. You're like, yes, I do this work. Yes, I do that work. I see you might need this, right? And this is what I bring yeah. to the table, right? Yeah. And I think that- And that's really what you sets get, you apart yes, as a candidate, That right? gets the framing for the interview. So for example, like it's funny, now that like I'm on the other side, I'm just like, I'm like, can you just tell me what, it is that makes you awesome so that I can so that like I can cut through all the bullshit and just be like yeah I see how you can fit because I really would love to hear that I would love to hear yeah how people are like you know women who are like you know what this is my specialty this is what I bring and from that I've learned this this is what I bring to the table because I, I think that. a lot of times the mistake that we make and that's how like our, our job market and like work structures work interviews are not a one-way thing you know there are two you are they are interviewing you to see if you're fit for the organization and the role but at the same time 
especially as racialized women, we have to be very careful in making sure that we're not putting ourselves in yet another hostile situation when we have to fight against the racist management, right? So it's also about making sure that you are confident in your abilities and in your work and that you really also like interrogate their... And again, it's a privilege to be at a point in my life where my skills and my experiences have put me in a position to be able to even make some of those negotiations. Uh, it's not... In, in terms no, no, of, no. It's timing. If I want to... It really is yeah, timing. I don't know. Timing is really, really fucking important. Yeah. And it doesn't get enough credit because you can't control timing. Right? Yeah. Your skills are a lot more valuable now than they were six months ago. That's the reality, yeah. right? And so I want to encourage anybody who does this work or has a particular interest or knowledge base or, you know, uh, excitement about equity work. I don't care what industry you're in, okay? Yeah. Like, this is your time. And I also want to say, speaking, I want to pick up on your interview, the interview, interview the interviewer yeah people if you're going out and you're job hunting number one you ask them about their about their diversity policies you ask them about the hiring promotion mentorship and development of black employees you ask them what their black employees would say about their organization that's going to that's going to trip a lot of people up and Mm -hmm. number like i usually say these things in threes i don't know why let me think of a third one um uh i'm bolder i would ask about the pay gap but that's me yeah i don't i'm not saying you guys have to and i'm not saying you guys have to even ask these questions but these are very important questions because they give you an idea and how these people answer it will give you an an idea of how much they're actually working on their racial issue because i can guarantee no matter where you go they have a racial issue i don't care who it is everybody does and honestly now's the time to hold workplaces accountable to things like principles and values that now they very publicly in some instances um you know shared and demonstrated right if you say that black lives matter if you shared that little black square on your instagram what are you doing now because you said you're you know if you shared that you must be committed to some level of equity and inclusion so how does that actually show up in the structures and in the policies of your organization and honestly that's literally how i framed that interview from my end because i was like okay so you're telling me that a b and c are work uh, that your organization is already taking place you're telling me that you're trying your best and you know being anti-racist and uplifting the voices of marginalized women so what i'm hearing from you is that you would be open to me being a b and c and doing a b and c in my role right so even before they offer you the job you are creating an expectation of accountability and kind of mutual understanding when it comes to equity mandates to inclusion mandates and I, I think I felt so confident in that process and in those conversations because I was setting the framework as much as the interviewer was. And the other thing, too, so, yeah. is that if they are hostile 
to you doing that, that's and not, that's already a red, it's flag. a red flag. Like seriously, I, you know, one of the things that I remember reading about, I think it was about law law schools, is that the only reason law offices started talking about work life balance is because their interviewees for articling positions were asking about it. And these are people who will have the least amount of power asking those questions. If they can do it, so can you. It's all I'm saying. Um, So now that it's on the agenda, you just got to make sure you hold them to account. And that's going to go a long way. It really will. However, that's, I think, a good note to end on. Until next time, Arzu, congratulations. Thank you. I am so happy for you because you got a full-time permanent position in a job where you wanted to in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, I'm really excited. I'm really thankful. Okay. Yeah. Good. All right, girl. I will see. We'll talk next week and we will talk to you guys next week. Ciao. (laughs) Ciao.